Good morning. As you said, my name is uh, Brandon, one of the pastors here, and uh, we are in a series in the, the book of John, the Gospel of John. John is one of the four letters that we call the Gospels, where they look at the, the life, the ministry, the teachings of Jesus. And John wrote his letter, his Gospel, with a clear intent. He wrote it trying to compel, to persuade people to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the divine Son of God. And he structured into this letter a series of what, what he calls signs. Signs are events or miracles that point beyond themselves to greater realities. So far we have seen uh, Jesus turn water into wine, restoring the dignity of an ashamed wedding host, the healing of a sick child, the healing of a crippled man, and today we hit the next sign. This sign is going to come in the context of a scene, a scene that has a large crowd following Jesus, and then a miraculous feeding. And then the next day, in text that we didn't read, but we will in a minute, Jesus addressing the crowd in light of that miraculous feeding. And when he does, when he enters into this dialogue with the crowd, he is going to force a question upon them, impose a question upon them, a question they could not avoid, that they could not dodge, and neither can we. A question that is an inescapable question, both for the crowd and for us. And so what is the question? Well, we will get there when the text gets there. Right now, let's jump into the scene and see what John is trying to say about Jesus and why he came through this event. And so let's go verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Okay, we need to kind of set the stage here because there is a scene change from chapter 5 to chapter 6. In chapter 5, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's addressing the Jews, saying to them, listen, you, you, you read the Old Testament, but you're reading it wrong. You are misunderstanding the Old Testament. He says things like this to them. You, you search the Scriptures, the Old Testament, because you think that in them you have eternal life, but they testify to me. He says things like, listen, if, um, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Why? Because Moses wrote of me. He wrote concerning me. So what he's doing is he's going back in and saying, listen, when you, when you open to the Scriptures, when you open the Old Testament and you don't read them in light of me or pointing to me or as fulfilled in me, you are misunderstanding what it is that they have to say because I, I am the fulfillment of all of those Scriptures. I am what they point to. Now we jump forward to chapter 6 and we're at the Sea of Galilee, which is not anywhere near Jerusalem. And so John is making a strategic play here. He is making a strategic play in jumping from John 5, Jesus dressing them about how they read the Old Testament, to an event that happens during the Passover. Passover being a meal that remembers the Exodus. The Exodus uh, was when God had delivered Israel out of captivity and slavery in Egypt. And so what is John doing? What is John trying to do in this strategic scene change? Well, our scene has this, a water crossing a food crisis, and a miracle feeding, just like the Exodus. And it happens 
during a meal that is to commemorate and celebrate the Exodus. See, what John is doing is this. He is setting up a scene to be a new Exodus, a different Exodus, a new story of deliverance. But this Exodus is going to have a twist. Let's keep reading. Verse 5, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Okay, I want to pause. I just want us to observe a couple of details in the story as we make our way through it. Detail one, that it's Jesus initiating. It's Jesus is the one who initiates and says, okay, hey, listen, where, where are we going to get bread? It's not the crowd. It's not the disciples. It's Jesus initiating this scene. The, uh, 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 detail two, it's bread that he asks for. Remember, uh, this is not the only food source available to Jesus. He owns the entire globe. And he says, where are we going to get bread? All right, let's keep reading. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. That's eight months wages, two-thirds of an annual salary, not enough for them. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said it to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So he says, hey, there's a boy over here. He's got five barley loaves, two fish. This is a small amount of food. This is enough food for one, maybe two people. And he says, listen, we've got thousands coming to us, and here's a boy with five loaves and two fish, and then he asks the question, what are they for so many? This is a question that has echoes of a deeper question. Questions of who is this Jesus and how is his life going to be enough for so many? How is his life, how is this man enough for the world? We'll get there in a minute too. Let's keep reading verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, so probably 20,000 people total. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. So he takes these uh, this five loaves and these two fish, and he feeds these thousands upon thousands of people with them. In a miraculous feeding, a miracle of multiplying the bread and the fish to be enough for thousands of people. And I want to pause here because I know that for some of us, we're, we're, we're hearing this and going, but I, I don't believe in miracles. In fact, this is one of my biggest struggles with Christianity. It's one of the reasons why uh, I have a really hard time with this. But here's what I, I want to do, because I, I don't want to try to necessarily challenge that right now. But what I would ask is for you to acknowledge this, that in the hospital room, when you are sitting there um, with with the doctor who says, you have stage four, it's terminal, and there's nothing that we can do, everybody under the sun says what? I need a miracle. I need a miracle. Point being that there is a, we all agree, a time and place to believe in miracles, and I'm asking you to let this be one of the times and places that you believe in miracles, because the miracles of Jesus are meant to teach us something. They're meant to teach us something important about who Jesus is and why he came. That every miracle of Jesus is him healing something broken in the world. Every miracle of Jesus is him taking something wrong and making it right. You will never find him going, hey, watch this. See that guy swimming? Coal in a backpack for him. 
Never. It is Him taking something wrong in the world and making it right. Him restoring the natural world from healing a leper to a young boy to a crippled man to feeding thousands of hungry people. They are Him restoring the natural world. Because listen, we all know this. Every one of us knows this, that when we see when we see a young boy about to die, that that is not natural. That is unnatural. When we see a young child who has cancer, we know that is not how the world is meant to be. That is not right. That is not natural. When we see a homeless family, we know that is not right. That is unnatural. When we see babies with bloated bellies because of mass starvation, we know that is not natural. That is not the way that the world is meant to be. What we need to see is that every miracle of Jesus is not him suspending the natural world, it is him restoring the natural world. It is him taking what is wrong and making it right. I heard one theologian put it this way one time, that the healings of Jesus are the only truly natural thing in a world that is unnatural. They are him entering into the world and making what is wrong right. They are Jesus giving a taste of what the world will be like, what the world should be like. But let's finish the scene now, and then we're going to try to come back and put it all together. And when, verse 12, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that none may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. So they didn't fully grasp who he was. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So Jesus says, hey, go, go around, take the fragments, the, the bread that's left over, put it in these 12 baskets, and then the the uh, the crowd there about to try to force him to become a political leader for them. Jesus says no, and he slips away. So what is the point of this scene? What is the thread? What is the point of the scene that John is trying to communicate here? This story of Jesus taking five loaves, two fish, feeding thousands upon thousands of people with it. What is John trying to communicate through it? Well, to answer that, we have to agree on something. There are no accidental details in the text. Every word matters. Every word is an intentional word through John by the Spirit. Every word matters. There are no accidental details in the text. And every detail, every detail is texture. Every detail is texture. It's meant to draw us deeper and deeper into the story. And these details are rich, rich as all of the Bible is with symbolic meaning. What do I mean? What does that mean? Well, bread and fish are not accidental ingredients. Remember, it's Jesus who asked for the bread, and they are not accidental. Bread is food from the land, fish bread from food from the sea. Now, the nation Israel is often associated with the land, and the Gentile nations, the other nations of the world, often associated with the sea, and 12 baskets representing the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples. And then when he said, gather together, gather and put into the 12 baskets, it was bread that they gathered, bread that represented Israel, put into these 12 baskets. But the word gather, the word that was 
translated here as gather. This is a distinct particular word that is used here. It is a word not used of inanimate objects. It is not a word that they would have said, hey, um, uh, Simon, go and gather up your toys. It would have been, hey, go gather up these people. It was a word associated with people, not inanimate objects. If I were to read you just the definition of the word, just the straight definition of the word translated gather here, it's to bring together, to renew relationships, to reconcile, to receive as a guest. And it's a word used in the Scriptures associated with gathering nations together. You see, here's the point. There is so much more. There is so, so so much more going on here than simply go pick up bread. It is him saying, listen, I came to gather the nations together. I came for the nations and for the bread. I came for Israel and I came for the world. I came to reconcile men, women, and children from every nation under the sun across the globe into this one people of God. I came for all. And if they didn't get it in John 6, they certainly would have understood when they hit this word gather again in John 11. John 11, 51 and 52. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather, gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. You see, what we're supposed to see in the story is that Jesus came for the nations, Jew, Gentile, Israel, Canada, Mexico, America, Dubai, you fill in the blank with your nation. Jesus came to gather into one people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation into one people of God and put them in the basket all together. He came for the nations. Anyone from anywhere is invited to come and be a part of the people of God, which means people like you and people like me people who grew up religious and people who were irreligious, people from Mexico, people from Canada, people who are emotionally put together and people who are not so much so. It came for all, those who see ourselves as an intellect and, and those who know we're not. He came for all, anyone and everyone invited into the basket. This is what we're intended to see, that this is a global exodus that is happening right here. It is an exodus for the nations. And listen, to say anyone and everyone from any nation under the sun as 21st century Christians looking back on this event, that is not exactly earth shattering. Likely many of us know that. But if you put yourself in their shoe and you realize if I were a Jew first century winning on my Messiah, our Messiah, waiting on our Christ. And this scene sets up mirroring our exodus. And then he says, hey, I'm here to bring about an exodus, but not just an exodus for you, an exodus for the world. This would have been paradigm shattering. I mean, this would have... I don't know what that is. I mean, it would have blown your world up. An exodus for the nation. The exodus is ours. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm here to bring about an exodus for the world. I am here to bring about a deliverance for the world. And Jesus took seven loaves and two fish to say to the crowd, anyone from anywhere is welcome to come and be a part of my crowd, to be a part of my people. Anyone from anywhere, from any nation is welcome to come and to follow me. And so now 
we are going to keep following the scene because the crowd is going to keep following him. And as they keep following him, there's going to be a conversation, a dialogue between Jesus and the crowd. And in that dialogue, it's going to take us to the question, the unavoidable, inescapable question that he has for them. And so let's pick it up in verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking, seeking Jesus. So the crowd, they see that Jesus is not there. They get in the boat, they cross over to Capernaum, and they are seeking, searching for, trying to find Jesus. And now when they find him, look at what Jesus says to them. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them. And in true Jesus fashion, doesn't actually answer them. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You see, Jesus turns their question, their question from, hey, Jesus, when did you come here to, why, why, are, why does it matter to you? Why are you following me? Why are you seeking me? It's not because you saw the signs, which obviously does not mean that they didn't see him take the bread and feed thousands. They, they were there. They ate the food. This is, this is parallel to when, you know, two friends or two roommates or spouses, they, they get into a fight or a dialogue or a, you know, an argument, whatever term you give it to try to mild it down a little bit. <laughs> and one of them says, listen, I, I, you're just not listening to me. I just feel like you are not listening to me. I'm saying these words and I feel like you're not hearing me. That doesn't mean that you don't actually hear the words they're saying. It means you're hearing, but you're not hearing. Or when a spouse says to another, listen, I, I, just, I just feel like you don't see me. Like I, I just feel like you don't see me. That doesn't mean that you're looking at me and you don't know that I'm here. That means you're looking at me, but you're not seeing me. That's what's going on here. They obviously saw the sign, but they didn't see the sign. They saw what happened, but they didn't see him. He didn't see me. And so Jesus is saying to them, you're not searching for me. You're not seeking me because of who I am. You're seeking me because you had enough bread to eat that there were leftovers. Because you were hungry, and then you were full, and now you're hungry again. You didn't come for me. You came for what I can give you. You didn't search for me because of me. You searched because of what I can give you. See, what Jesus is saying to the crowd is this. Why you follow me matters. Why you are seeking me, crowd, it matters. Which takes us to the unavoidable, inescapable question that Jesus would have for this crowd. Why do you follow me? Jesus asks. Why do you follow me? Is it for who I am or for what I can give you? Why do you follow me is an inescapable, unavoidable question for them and for us. We're going to keep reading because Jesus is going to keep pressing the issue. Verse 27. 
do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said it to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him, in him whom he has sent. Jesus said that there is a food that will feed you for all of eternity. And the crowd says, okay, what do we got to do to get that food? What are the works that we have to do? What do we have to do to earn that food? If that's the food that will feed, I want that food. What do I have to do to get that food? And Jesus says, here is the work that you have to do. You have to believe. You have to believe in the one whom he sent. And so the crowd responds. So they said to him, then what sign do you do? that we may see and believe you? Or what work do you perform? Okay, Jesus, if this is what you're saying, that, that, the, that what we're supposed to do is believe, and you're saying you're the one that he sent, then what do you do to prove to us that we should see and believe? Profoundly confusing to me. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses that gave the bread from heaven, but my Father, my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You see, they say, here's the deal, Jesus. If you're saying you're the one whom he sent and we're to believe, then give us a sign that we're supposed to believe in you. And then they say that our fathers, during the Exodus, they ate bread that rained down from heaven. And Jesus says, uh, that is true, you did eat bread, but the he that gave you the bread, it wasn't Moses, it was my father. It was my father who gave you bread in the Exodus. My father gave you bread then, and my father is giving you bread now. You see, he's saying, I am the true bread, I am the true Exodus. Everything else is a foreshadow to me that when bread rained down from heaven into the Exodus, it was an arrow, a shadow pointing to me, the true bread, the bread that would come down from heaven and give life to the world. You see, here's what he's saying. Here's what Jesus is saying. When it rained bread during the Exodus, that was miraculous. When I, when I took five loaves, two fish, and I just fed thousands, that was miraculous, but I am the true miracle. I'm the miracle. I am the Word made flesh. I am the bread that came from heaven to earth. I am the true miracle. All other miracles were foreshadows that pointed to me. All miracles were foreshadows that pointed to the miracle of my incarnation, my coming, my Word becoming flesh. And I am here to feed you. I am here to feed you, not just in your stomach, but in your soul. Verse 34, so they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. If, there, if this bread is available, Jesus, we want it. Feed it. Give it to us. How do we get it? We want it always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Give us this bread. I am the bread. We want, we want this bread always. I am the bread, the bread of life. And now there are two Greek words for life. Two Greek words available for life. Bios and zoe. Bios is the word that we get biology from. It's physical life. Zoe is the quality of life. It's the good life. It's the life that we want. It's the, the life that transcends the human soul. And bread, physical bread, was meant to sustain bios. 
keep you physically alive. That when they ate bread in the Exodus, it was for their bios. When Jesus gave bread to the crowd, it was for their bios. But here Jesus says, I am the bread of Zoe. I'm the bread of Zoe. I am the bread who came to feed you the life that you want, the good life, the life that you can't simply get through eating enough bread that you're, you have stuff left over. I am the bread of Zoe. I came to give life, the good life, the life that we all want. And now listen, saying, calling yourself the bread of Zoe and not the bread of Bios would have made absolutely no sense. Not to anyone. Not to a Jew, not to a Greek, not to anyone. No one would have heard, I'm the bread of Bios and not gone. Well, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, bread of Zoe. Bread is for biology. Bread is to feed our stomach. This would not have made any sense to anyone anywhere until not long after this, Jesus would sit down with his disciples to have another Passover meal, and he would take bread, and he would break it, and he would say, this is my body broken for you. And then on the cross, it would be. On the cross, here is what happened. On the cross, Jesus' bios would end so that your zoe could begin. On the cross, Jesus' heart stopped beating so that yours truly could. On the cross, Jesus died so that you could truly live. So that you could truly live. You want to know what eternal life is in the scriptures? Eternal life is this. Eternal bios with eternal zoe. That's the point of the resurrection to come, that in the resurrection to come, there is an eternal physical life with an eternal zoe, an eternal life that Christ came to give. Eternal bios with eternal zoe, that is, that is eternal life. And so when Jesus is your bread of life, this is what you have. And so to continue the metaphor, how do we eat this bread? If he is the bread of life, how do we eat this bread? Let's finish verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Okay, I need to point something out here in the text because it's important. Where it says, whoever believes and whoever comes, the, the word whoever is there to help us be able to read this. Literally, what it is is an article and a participle. What does that matter? Here's what matters. Because what it's literally saying, its wooden translation is the one who is coming, the one who is believing. It's an ongoing, never-ending action. It is not speaking of a one-time event. There is another way to say that. It's not the one who has believed and the one who has come. It's the one who is believing, the one who is coming. That is the one that will never hunger and will never thirst. And of course, Jesus would say, I, I have the power to make your bios, your physical life better, but I didn't come to breathe a bread of biology. I came to be the bread of life, your life, so that even if you don't have enough bread to eat, you have bread to eat. I came to be the one who would satisfy not just your stomach, but your soul. I came to be the one that you would feast on, and that you would feast by always coming, always believing, never stopping. And so we are back to our inescapable, unavoidable question that Jesus has, why do you follow me? Why do you follow me? Is it so that your bios, so that your physical life can get better? So that you can have the marriage that you think that you need, so that you can have some kind of relational security? Is it so that your financial status can improve? Is it because you think this is what your kids need? Or is it because you see him? 
Is it because you see him? Is it because you see him and he is your Zoe? He is your life. He is the good life. He is the one who offers the life that you want. Why do you follow me is an unavoidable, inescapable question. You see, if it's so that the things of this life will improve, you will never be satisfied. They will never be enough. You will never know what it's like to experience the shall not thirst, the shall not hunger. Because if he is a means to a better physical life, that life will never be good enough. He has to be your Zoe, the life that you want, the good life. Because when he is your life, you can look at the rest of your life and know no matter how little food you have or how big your house is, it's not your bread. He is. And so if we are supposed to feast on this bread, to feast on him by always coming and always believing, what do we do? What do we do? Here's what we do. It is not complicated. It is what Christians have done for 2,000 years. We take ourselves into the means of grace. We place ourselves where we can see, receive, and embrace and be shaped by the grace that we have. It means that we consistently open to the Scriptures so that we continue to trust in the Word, the true Word, Christ. So we don't look for signs that God loves us. We don't look to our retirement to know that we have God's favor. We, we, don't, we don't look to our professional or relational success to know that we have God's blessing and favor. We look to the Word, the true Word, and we trust Him. It means that we just keep coming to the table. We keep coming to this table right here. You know, in the text when it says that He gave thanks, twice it says He gave thanks in this passage. That's the word Eucharist. The, the word for this table we keep coming to this table with thanksgiving, grateful to the one who came to redeem and reconcile people from every nation under the sun, which includes us. We keep pressing ourselves, opening ourselves up to men, women inside of the church, saying, this is my life, this is who I am. Help me be molded more and more into the image of Christ. Because listen to me, listen, always coming, always believing when you step out of honest, rich, real relationships inside of the church, that gets much harder to do, and we drift into isolation, and that's when we stop coming and we start drifting away from believing. And then prayer. Prayer. We consistently pray on our own and together. It's why, it's why every month we gather together on the first Sunday, usually first Sunday, and we pray we pray. We pray corporately. We pray together so that we can rehearse together as a community, as a church, what it looks like to keep coming, to keep coming, to keep coming. We have our believing nourished as we pray together. Jesus came not simply to be the bread of bios, not to be the bread of biology, but to be the bread of life, true life, the life that we all want, the life that transcends everything. He took seven loaves and two fish to put on display his invitation to the nations to come and follow me. Come and follow me. So let's never stop following. Let's never stop coming. Let's never stop believing in the bread that came from heaven, the bread of life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for John 6. And thank you most of all that in this scene, 
we get a reminder of the global exodus, the global invitation, the global deliverance that is offered through your son. Your son who came into the world to redeem and reconcile men, women, and children like us. Father, help us to be people in a community who just never stops coming and never stops believing. And we always, always push ourselves into those means of grace, those places where the waterfall of grace just pours out on us. Help us. We need it. We need you to be and stay that kind of community. It'll take your mercy. And so we desperately need it. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.